Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. When I first, first, first recorded that episode with Emma, I did not have a name for the podcast. I did not have any sort of launch, anything in preparation for that interview. It literally was just the first interview. I didn't have the format of how I was going to be interviewing people, what kind of questions I was going to be asking. I had none of that. I may have had a loose idea in my head around what I wanted to speak to. And that's just based on my own theory that the breadcrumbs of our purpose are found in childhood. And if we ask the right questions from childhood, such as what was your favorite toy or activity, and then just kind of ask questions from there, then you're eventually going to see that, oh, there's a connection between the things that I was most interested in as a child versus what I'm interested in today. And so that was something that I was exploring in those early days. And if you go back and listen to the original episodes, you'll see that I started every single conversation with what was your favorite toy or activity as a child. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Light Watkins show with yours truly, Light Watkins. If this is your first time here, I interview people just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they have been able to positively impact the lives of many others who have heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who have benefited directly from their work. And today I am going to do a solo episode, which I do on occasion. And this will be a deep dive into the origin story of this very podcast, which I've touched on before, but I have never gone this deep into my experiences in the early days of starting the podcast. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about the insecurities, the doubts, and the fears that I personally experienced before launching the show, as well as during the actual show. I'm going to talk about why I thought about not launching the show and how I came up with the first name for it, which is at the end of the tunnel. I'll talk about where I found my initial guests and why I chose the guests that I chose, how I came up with the format of the questions that I like to ask and taking the guests through that. I'm going to talk about my research process and why I chose to research so extensively before interviewing my guests. I'm going to talk about the mission that I had in mind and which platforms I used in those early days. Some of that may surprise you. And I'm going to talk about the three episodes that I was super nervous about interviewing those guests. And I'll go into detail about what every one of my guests who started a movement have in common. So this ended up being sort of like a masterclass on starting a podcast. 
And even if you have zero desire to start a podcast, but you want to start some sort of movement or you want to follow some sort of calling or mission, you will still get a ton of value out of hearing about my process and the way I kind of thought through it. So without further ado, let's dive into this solo episode about all things podcasting. Hello there. Welcome back to the Light Watkins show. I'm, of course, Light Watkins. Today's episode is going to be a solo episode. I was posting about my podcast the other day, and I was thinking about how honored I am to have this platform to be able to talk to people, to be able to spread inspiration, inspirational stories. And at the same time, I was thinking about how this was probably the most time-consuming and difficult thing that I've taken on in the last couple of years because it's ongoing and it's requiring just a lot of extra time in reading books and researching and making the time to be in a quiet place. And as you know, I've been living from a backpack for the most part. Although I am based here in Mexico City, I have an Airbnb, which is where I'm recording this episode. Mexico City is interesting because it's a very loud place and it really doesn't matter where you are. I've actually recorded in sound studios, very well insulated. I've been in tall buildings here and here I'm in my apartment in a relatively residential area and it's just loud, right? There's so many people out, musicians out busking and playing songs at various cafes. And then there are people who are selling all kinds of wares using bullhorns and and other sounds. There's a sweet potato guy here who has this, this sort of whistling oven that he rides around with and whistles this really, really loud whistle to let everyone know that he's in the area. And then there's the knife sharpening guy who has his whistle to let everyone know he's in the area. And then you have the garbage people and they have their bell that they ring to let everyone know that they're in the area. And then the tamale guy, he's riding around on his bicycle with his recording, which is a Spanish recording about his red and green tamales that he's selling. And then the most notorious sound that you hear around Mexico City is they call it the colchones truck. They drive around with the recording of this girl, this young seven-year-old girl singing about conchones, refrigerado, tambores. Basically, there's it's a junk truck and they're saying, we'll come around and pick up your old appliances that you no longer want and we'll exchange them for pesos. But it kind of sounds like a horror movie soundtrack (laughs) because of the young girl. And of course, there's a whole story behind it. New York Times has done a story behind it. If you're curious, you can just go to the New York Times, Sounds of Mexico City, search that, and you'll see the whole story of the seven-year-old girl who's the junk yard's owner's daughter who recorded it, and now everybody uses it. But the point is, these guys ride around the city, and you you rarely have 10 minutes of silence before you hear one of these sounds I'm recording this near the end of the day. It's 7 o'clock p.m. So probably the only sound we'll hear at this point is the tamale guy. If I recorded it any earlier today, then we would hear everything. 
So when I'm doing podcasts, a lot of times I have to mute myself because there's all this noise here and you can hear all these guys. Their sounds are made to be heard in any kind of situation, even in, in tall buildings. So that's an interesting dilemma to have to navigate from here. But aside from all of that, from the difficulty of recording from here in Mexico City from my apartment and doing all this essentially from a backpack, which means I just have a microphone and then I purchased a light. I purchased an LED light, which I'll probably leave here with a friend when I ultimately leave. It's a very minimal setup for a podcast. So with that, with the microphone, I'm using Zoom to record video. And so I've been able to have these amazing conversations, well over 100 conversations at this point. It's been a weekly episode, which means I haven't missed a week. And during the pandemic, it was much easier to predict where I was going to be. Before the pandemic, before I started the podcast, I was kind of all over the place. But I've done these now around the world. I had to travel to Europe and I traveled throughout the States over the past year or so. And so I've definitely had to adjust my own schedule around this. And that that's another thing that makes it a little bit more difficult going back and forth with guests. And the bigger the guest is, the more gatekeepers you end up having to deal with. And that also requires a lot of your time and attention and calling in favors and trying to work out, am I being too much? Am I sending too many emails? Am I turning this person off? You know, you just never really know. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. How much is too much? So you're kind of trying to find that balance as well. But at the same time, it's been very gratifying, as I said, because it gives you an opportunity to instantly add value to someone's life, someone who's potentially listening to the podcast, as well as someone who is being interviewed on the podcast. And I highly recommend 
starting a podcast, if anyone listening to this now is thinking of doing so, but you're talking yourself out of it because you're thinking to yourself, there's a million podcasts. Everyone and their mother has a podcast. All of these celebrities have podcasts. There's no way that I would stand out in the podcast field. But I would argue that, yes, there are a lot of podcasts about pretty much everything under the sun, but no one has your specific background. No one has your unique point of view. No one has your motivation for starting a podcast. And to be perfectly honest, very, very few podcast hosts do the deep research before having a podcast interview. And so if you bring your personality, your authenticity, your unique perspective, and your willingness to do a deep dive into that person's body of work, if you bring all of that with you to the conversation and you have professionalism and you have the tenacity to publish on a schedule, your podcast, even though there's a million podcasts, your podcast will quickly rise above the fray. Now, I'm not saying you're going to crack the top 100 podcasts in your genre anytime in the first year or two, although that that's a possibility, depending on how much attention you can bring to your work and draw from the audience. And, you know, that's, it's, that's a whole other conversation is maybe in antics and gimmicks that cause you to stand out even more. But even without doing all of that, just being yourself and just doing the deep research can cause the quality of your show to quickly rise to the top. Because as someone who's been on a lot of podcasts, I've probably been on, I would say, and this is not an exaggeration, I would say I've been on probably close to 100 podcasts. I've been interviewed 100 times between the release of my last few books and just being on friends, podcasts, and whatnot. And I would say that out of those 100 podcasts, probably five of them were with people who did deep research, if that, maybe less than five, maybe less than five. And here's the thing. The interviewee knows instantly if the host has actually read the person's book or done any sort of deep research. I know instantly if someone's read my book in the first 10 minutes of talking to them based on the quality of their questions. And so 95% of the podcasts out there, people are just doing very, very surface level research. And back when I initially started my podcast, having been on a lot of podcasts and having been sort of disappointed in it's not that you can't have a good interview if you don't do deep research, because you, you may just have enough life experience to be able to ask some provocative questions that maybe the person hasn't been asked before. But it just makes for a better interview when someone has done the deep research. So that was one of the values that I have for myself as a podcast host when I first started my podcast in 2020 was to always do the deep research, because I just know what it feels like from both sides. 
to be interviewed by someone who hasn't done that deep research. And that's one of the things that you've probably heard my guests tend to compliment me on is doing the deep research. Now, that said, I have learned over the episodes, over the dozens and dozens and dozens of episodes, how to research more effectively. And I'll tell you how that works later on in this episode. But back in the early, early days, in fact, in my very first interview, I did not do any research. My first interview was with Emma Maynou, who has a platform called Surviving Sundays. And I remember interviewing her in November of 2019. I happened to be in London and I was on her podcast, her very first podcast that she wanted to interview me. And so I said, well, I would love to interview you as well. So it's kind of a trade-off. And, and I did it with my iPhone, whatever version iPhone I had at the time. I don't really remember. But I did a video podcast and I had this microphone, this wireless microphone set up. And at the time, Zoom was not a big thing for podcasts. In fact, if you had a Zoom podcast, your podcast was seen as very basic. Most people were doing podcasts in person. They had video setups and or just strictly audio setups. And so I shot the podcast on my iPhone using those remote microphones in anticipation of potentially doing that every time I had a podcast and I had a little tripod and everything. It was still, it was still a very minimal setup because I was living from a backpack at that time. But thankfully, because of the pandemic, Zoom became not just an acceptable format to use, but really it became the go-to format for podcasts. So it was a great time to launch a podcast remotely from a minimalist point of view, because you weren't seen as doing something that was too basic using Zoom. And also people were just sitting at home. So it was a perfect time. And I would say that it still is a perfect time to launch using Zoom, because if you want to get bigger guests, meaning guests who are in more demand than other guests, they're not going to come to you if your podcast is brand new and you're just starting out and you're not really that experienced as a podcast host. So it just makes it a lot easier for you to land the bigger guests if you offer to interview them over Zoom versus having them have to come to you to be on your podcast, right? Now, if you're in LA, which is where you probably want to be in LA and Austin or New York, you want to be in one of those three cities, ideally LA, it's a little bit easier to get a guest to come to you because that's where all of the biggest podcasts are being recorded and filmed is in Los Angeles. So when someone is doing the podcast circuit, which usually happens when they have a book coming out or something to promote, they're going to go fly to Los Angeles, spend some time there, and they're going to do seven or eight of the top podcasts while they're in LA over the course of, say, a week or two. And then if you're in that area and they're in that area, then it's obviously a lot easier for them to come to you. Okay, so I haven't elevated my podcast production to that point yet. I'm still doing it from a backpack and that's all fine. But going back to the early days, when I first, first, first recorded that episode with Emma, I did not have a name for the podcast. I did not have any sort of launch, anything in preparation for that interview. It literally was just the first interview. I didn't have the format of how I was going to be interviewing people, what kind of questions I was going to be asking. I had none of that. I may have had a loose idea in my head around 
what I wanted to speak to. And that's just based on my own theory that the breadcrumbs of our purpose are found in childhood. And if we ask the right questions from childhood, such as what was your favorite toy or activity, and then just kind of ask questions from there, then you're eventually going to see that, oh, there's a connection between the things that I was most interested in as a child versus what I'm interested in today. And so that was something that I was exploring in those early days. And if you go back and listen to the original episodes, you'll see that I started every single conversation with what was your favorite toy or activity as a child. Now, once I had that episode in the can, I didn't know what to do with that. That was just sort of my first step. And I talk a lot about taking the first step and the next step will get revealed after that. And the good thing about that first step is that it was a confidence booster. I ended up going to New York afterward, after London. And then I interviewed another friend of mine who had a platform, April Dinwiddie's Adoptment. And these were episodes that I didn't launch until later on in the podcast. These were the first ones that I recorded, but they were not the first ones that I ended up publishing. And I'll tell you why. So again, I recorded that one with the iPhone and the remote microphones. And then there was a problem with the microphone. One of them wasn't plugged in all the way or something. So in that recording, you couldn't hear me, but you could hear her throughout the whole thing. Now, she was a friend of mine. In fact, she was an ex-girlfriend of mine. And that turned out to be a good thing because when I realized that the recording was flawed, I felt comfortable enough to ask her to re-record the podcast episode, which we ended up doing remotely. So that's another thing that I recommend people do when they start off is to do interviews with your friends, with people who know you well. Now, if I had done that first interview with some big you know, person and the sound wasn't right, how embarrassing would that be to have to go back and say, hey, you know what? I screwed up the sound because I didn't know what I was doing. Can you spend another two hours with me to talk to me about the same thing we just talked about a week ago, right? Probably I would not have been able to have that second go at interviewing that person. But because she was a friend and I was still trying it all out, she agreed to come back onto the podcast. So I would say for the first handful of episodes as you're working out the kinks, you want to interview your friends. It doesn't mean that you have to release those in sequential order. You can release those you know, whenever you want to release them, but it gives you an opportunity to work out your format, how you want to interview, what kind of questions you want to ask, and then also working out the equipment. You know, And you want to figure out, does my equipment work in the way that I have it set up? And what do I need to make it better? And if the lighting is an issue, you know, maybe I need a different kind of lighting and the microphone is an issue, need a different kind of microphone, et cetera, et cetera. So at that point in New York, when I recorded her episode, I still did not have a name, still didn't have a launch date or anything. I was just getting interviews in the can. And I also didn't know there was a pandemic happening at that point. I didn't know there was a pandemic happening at that point. That obviously was going to shift everything. And that kind of put everything on pause for a few months when the pandemic hit. And so I didn't do anything with the podcast until several months later. I found myself, I rented an Airbnb in Atlanta, and I had been working with 
a new virtual assistant and the world had essentially come to a halt. And I thought this is the perfect time to launch my podcast because time basically slowed down and the things that I was busying myself with before, which was flying around, uh, hosting these live workshops and retreats, everything had gotten canceled. And so I had nothing else to do other than work on any sort of online endeavors. And so that was like the perfect time to start the podcast. So then I began scheduling interviews with other friends of mine. And I mentioned in my previous solo episode that, you know, I had started that shine movement, that nonprofit, the inspirational variety show in Los Angeles that lasted from 2014 to 2018 slash 19. And so that became an opportunity to develop relationships with people who had started missions because those were the people that we tapped to come and give talks about their mission or their purpose. So I had a whole network of people who had been living their purpose. And that was the subject of my podcast because that's what I'm just genuinely curious about. And I, I always thought to myself, if more people could hear these stories, it would inspire more people to do the same thing to take whatever they've been curious about probably since childhood and to take the next few steps with it. And so that was the sort of genesis of the podcast. And at this point, I was thinking of the name at the end of the tunnel, because obviously that is a play on my name. The full saying is light at the end of the tunnel, which has connotations around death, (laughs) seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But also the way I was positioning it was looking for the light in your life. If you feel like you're in a dark place, usually it's because you are not following your path or your purpose. You're trying to do what everybody else thinks you should do. And that Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, our chief want is for someone to inspire us to be what we know we can be was my guiding light for starting the podcast because I wanted to create that that other people could then enjoy. But I also want to be completely transparent and admit that I was relatively insecure around being a host with all the other podcasts out there, even though, you know, I just told you that you should start a podcast for yourself if you even have an inkling of a thought about doing one. But I know what that feels like. I know what the imposter syndrome feels like. You know, how am I going to stand out and what am I going to do? And I just had to get started. I didn't love the sound of my voice. I was super nervous about sounding intelligent when I was talking to people. And I think that's one of the other reasons why I like to do as much research as I was doing, because I wanted to over-prepare for these episodes, because I didn't really know where they were going to go. Like today, I know kind of where they're going to go, and I know how to prep people for the episodes a lot better than I did in the early days. And yeah, I got really nervous. There were a few episodes that I was super, super nervous about. One of the episodes was when I talked to David Blight, who was the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning Frederick Douglass biography, which I think was called Prophet of Freedom. And he's a professor and he wrote this Pulitzer Prize winning book. And I was, you know, watching a lot of his other interviews and I was thinking, oh my God, this guy has been interviewed by so many smart people. And now he's going to come on my podcast. And it took a lot of back and forth. I literally just reached out to him 
through his Yale email address. I didn't know he was going to respond back, but he ended up responding back because again, school was out due to the pandemic. So he didn't respond back right away though. I had to send him probably four or five emails. And then he finally responded back. And what I did was I created an asset. I created a graphic showing him how I would be promoting the episode. So I put his photo in it. I cut out the background and I put the name of my show on it. So he could basically envision himself like he's already been interviewed by me and it's already locked and loaded. And this is what it's going to look like. And when I did that, he ended up responding to my email. And this was a unique episode because this was more of an episode about Frederick Douglass and not about him. Because I, d- I figured out I wanted to interview people who were dead or alive who had started movements. And Frederick Douglass obviously was a big abolitionist during his time, among several other things. He escaped from slavery. He's got an incredible story. And David Blight is probably one of the world's foremost authorities on the life of Frederick Douglass. So I thought this could be an interesting experiment. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to be experimental. And I think I found out about David Blight. Can't remember. I think I looked at like the New York Times top recommended books for 2020 or something like that. And I saw this book. It was a big book. It's like a thousand page long book. I listened to the audio version of the book, which was like 36 hours. And I listened to it as I was going on my walks in Atlanta, you know, in Piedmont Park. And I was taking notes on my notes app on my phone. And I would just write down obscure things that made me genuinely curious. So for instance, David Blight, he had the most interesting chapter titles. And I thought that was cool. And then I would write down little things, little nuances about Frederick Douglass' life that I thought, well, if I'm Frederick Douglass and I'm traveling around on these trains and giving all these talks and, you know, did he have an assistant and how did he keep his clothes clean? I would, I would think about weird stuff like that because that's the stuff that I would normally be curious about. And these are questions that would not typically come up in an interview, you know, typical interview with someone, author of a book. Oh, uh, what was your motivation? How did the readers respond? You know, is there anything that you didn't add into the book? You know, these kinds of very basic surface questions. And so when we had our interview, I had written out a page, uh, like probably four or five pages of notes from reading the book, front to, uh, cover to back cover. I had the notes next to me during our Zoom session. I'm in my bedroom because that was the best quality of sound during the conversation. And I was all nervous and jittery, you know, when he he came, I saw his name on Zoom and then I connected him and was so scared I was going to forget to hit record. So I, I would write out record really big on my on my page of notes at the very top so I would not forget. And I did end up forgetting to hit record one time, but I remembered about 10 minutes into an interview that I'll tell you about later. And just started kind of having this conversation and I wanted it to feel more conversational And it ended up being this really amazing interview. And by the end of the interview, David Blight says to me, that was the best interview I've ever had. (laughs) He says, you read so closely. And that was such a validation and confirmation of my approach to this interviewing style. And of course, I did spend some time in the very beginning asking David about his life and basically taking him through that same journey 
of what was your favorite toy or activity as a child and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think he really appreciated that because he, you don't want to feel like you're just being used to talk about this other person's life, even though you wrote their book, you're still a real human that has an effect on the writing. And so it was a nice blend of both his life as well as Frederick Douglass's life. That gave me confirmation to know that I could talk to people who are really, really smart and not sound too stupid. And then the next one was when I interviewed Ava DuVernay, the director, the famous film director. She and I originally connected over all of the social justice movement stuff because I was posting every day. I was posting these videos about that. And she had started following me. And initially, when she started following me, the first thing I thought of was, oh, my God, I'll get her on my podcast. And I'm only like 12 or 13 episodes in at this point, maybe even less. But that was one of the first things I thought about. And at the same time, I didn't want to be that guy who the moment they have some famous person following them, they hit him up for stuff. Right. So I let the relationship develop organically. She kept liking and commenting on some of my stuff. I would go and comment on some of her stuff. Obviously, I followed her right away. And then we started exchanging some DMs, just mutual appreciation. Thanks for the work you do, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually I asked her if she'd be open to it. I'd love to talk to her about her story and share that with the world, like her, her origin story, which I had not really heard before because she hadn't done a whole lot of podcast interviews at that time. And I already knew I was going to do a thorough background you know, research job on her. And I knew that she was going to enjoy the conversation. But a lot of times people, you know, they have preconceived ideas, especially if you're a famous person, you've been interviewed a million times, you know that most of those interviews are going to be surface level interviews. People aren't going to do a lot of deep research and it's going to be a little bit awkward and weird. And you're just going to hope that it ends soon. Right. So I already know that that's probably what they're thinking. And she agreed. And I said to her, and another message to say, well, it's going to take us, you know, about an hour and a half to do the whole whole interview. And she balked. She goes, an hour and a half? She goes, you know, maybe we can do 45 minutes or something like that. And at that point, I was just like, okay, well, let me just get her to say yes and agree to something. And then we can just see how it goes. And maybe it'll just be 45 minutes. Maybe it'll be longer. I don't know. I'll prepare for 45 minutes. But if it goes longer, then great. So I said, fine, you know, we can do 45 minutes. And super nervous for that one, did a lot of research, listened to a lot of her other obscure interviews, took meticulous notes. She doesn't have a book out, so there was nothing to read. And what I learned later was that when someone has a book, it makes it a whole lot easier to prepare for that person because they had to organize their thoughts and their life in a more or less linear way and talk about the stories that were most poignant to them and whatnot. And so when someone doesn't have that, you kind of have to do all that for yourself. You have to piece all that together for yourself. And again, I wasn't as experienced in researching. So I was just researching every single thing that was under the sun, making correlations, making connections, and just seeing how she ended up wherever she ended up. And so during our interview, again, she logs in on Zoom. I'm all nervous. I have record written really big on my paper. And she's in her office in her home in Hollywood. And there's like this pad in front of her. And when we start the conversation, 
you know, we do the pleasantries and all of that. And I start to take her through her life, starting in childhood. I'm noticing that she's flipping this pad with her finger and it's making this kind of sound. And I'm like, oh my, I'm thinking to myself in the back of my mind, oh my God, this is not going to sound good on the recording. And she's also slapping the table. Like whenever she makes a point, she slaps the table or she flips the pad. And so it's really not good for sound quality purposes. And I'm thinking this, but I don't dare say anything to her because again, I'm just this little guy interviewing her. She's this big famous director. So I just kind of let it go because I didn't want to make her uncomfortable. And maybe I should have said something, but I never did say anything. And regardless, we ended up talking for about two hours because I started asking her questions that she's never been asked before in an interview. And of course, Ava grew up in Los Angeles. I lived in Los Angeles for many years. So I had a bit of a unique advantage over probably other interviewers in that I had been to a lot of the places that she had experienced growing up and going to college at UCLA. And so I could make those connections. And if you make two or three obscure connections that someone has never had pointed out to them before, they will think you know everything. <laughs> and that and that causes them to kind of open up and relax and tell you other stories that they've never told anyone before. And it just turns into a really wonderful conversation that you can have with someone. And so that was also a really big moment for me because she said at the end, that was one of the top three interviews I've ever had. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. In fact, I think I was the one that ended that conversation. She would have kept going on and on because she was just enjoying it so much. And I knew that that would be a big episode to put out. And that would also help me get other guests on the podcast. And, you know, that's something I never anticipated doing. But then the question became, okay, when do we put it out so that we can take advantage of this, ride the wave, et cetera, et cetera, and use it as leverage to help build the guest role for other people to potentially come on and share their story. So I would I will put that in the category of of luck, blind luck getting Ava DuVernay, but at the same time, it was a, a situation of preparation meeting opportunity in that I was posting these videos on social media which would take me 2 hours a day to do and I was doing that every day even before the social justice stuff came up. So when that came up and I was talking about Black Lives Matter that was just something I was doing automatically. I had a workflow in place and everything. And so if I had not been doing that, I would not have gotten the attention of someone like an Ava DuVernay. And so it is a lucky break, but it's lucky in the sense that I was already doing something meaningful and substantial before that to take advantage of that kind of opportunity. The third interview from the early days that I was really, really nervous about was when I interviewed Adrian Mishler of Yoga with Adrian. Now, Adrian was someone who I actually knew. I'd met her prior to that interview in London. We happened to both be at Wanderlust. She was leading a yoga thing at Wanderlust, and I was there just visiting because I was going to do some work with him as well the following year. And it was, and I had been following her yoga classes on YouTube for number of years. And so that was a really fun time getting to meet Adrian in London and then staying connected to her loosely, loosely. I wouldn't say we're best friends or anything like that, but you know, if I reached out to her via DM, she would hit me back and vice versa. And she had a huge following 
she probably had a bigger following than Ava DuVernay at the time, in fact. And hers was all organic grassroots from her yoga classes. And I didn't even realize how impactful that interview would ultimately become. But Adrienne doesn't do a lot of interviews. She doesn't do a lot of podcasts. In fact, I don't think she's done really any podcasts. And I don't know why she agreed to do mine, but she did. And we went really, really deep into her story. When I did Adrian's interview, I was using this platform that was not Zoom. It was This was before I started using Zoom. So initially, I was using the video on my iPhone. Then I started using this platform, which I'm not going to name, but it wasn't a video platform. It was an audio platform. And the whole deal with this was that it was going to give you studio quality audio. But it was this really weird onboarding flow where the person had to I sent them a link. I had to create the link and then I would send them the link and then they would click on the link and then that would connect them to the interview. But sometimes it didn't work. In fact, most times it didn't work and I'd have to resend the link two or three times and you know, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes the call would drop off in the middle. I mean, it was really, really laborious and just kind of unnecessarily complicated for audio that also wasn't even studio quality. A lot of times it was very poor quality audio for some strange reason. But I did the research and I found out that this was you know, the best quality. That's what all the reviews were saying. But in some of my early podcast recordings, in fact, if you listen to Jesse Israel's recording, the guy who started The Big Quiet, there are parts of that interview where it sounds like Darth Vader has taken over the recording. And you can hear like, you can hear that while we're talking and it sounds like yeah it sounds like there's just something really weird happening and that's not something that i could control i don't know why it happened because no one was breathing heavily in that way but it ended up happening on a few of those episodes and one of them I recorded in Mexico City with Robert Egger. And that's another one that I had to re-record because the connection just wasn't that strong. Oh, and then once you had the conversation with that platform, once you had the conversation, you had to then do some other steps to upload your end of the conversation to the main cloud server. And then that was, and then you could download it from there. But if your connection wasn't strong enough, then it wouldn't upload properly. Or if the person hung up too quickly, it wouldn't upload properly. So that one with Robert, it didn't upload properly. And so we had to re-record that one. He was gracious enough to re-record it for me. Again, he was in the first maybe 10 people that I interviewed, and he's a friend of mine. But not that great of a friend of mine to ask him to do that. But So he, he really did me a solid in agreeing to come back on and re-record the podcast. And at that point, I believe we did the same platform, but I stopped. I ultimately stopped using that platform because it just wasn't optimal. And it, there was too many mistakes. And so going back to Adrian, what made Adrian's interview interesting? I did the background. She doesn't have a book either. So it was hard to kind of piece together. And at that point, I was so obsessed with like doing deep dive research. And if someone hasn't written a book, it's hard to do that. So I was feeling a little bit insecure that I didn't know enough about her life. And Adrian was so good about going into great detail about every aspect of her backstory with me that we ended up exceeding the time 
we set, I think, two hours for that interview and, and we exceeded that time. So we had to hop back onto a, another call a few days later, which we did and pick up from there. So the whole episode ended up being like three and a half hours. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, how do I do this? I have a three and a half hour interview this, with this amazing person. Do I do the whole thing? Do I cut out some of it? Do I split it in half? Do we do, do we release two episodes? So all this stuff had not been worked out, but that was just another experience that gave me an opportunity to decide how do I want to proceed with this? What are the best practices? And I know some like James Altucher would do two episodes and other podcasters from time to time would do two episodes. Oprah does two episodes from time to time. And what we decided to do with Adrian's was we decided to just cut some of it. So I think it's cut down to like two hours, 15 minutes or something like that. But interestingly, Adrian's episode is still to this day, the most popular episode, the most downloaded, the most listened to episode that I've done since I started. And that's just because her fan base is so, A, she hasn't done a lot of interviews and B, her fan base is just so engaged with any and everything that she does. So part of me wishes I had released the whole three and a half hour episode, but that's also something that can be done at some point in the future to give added value to the show, the overall show. So you always want to make sure you're keeping the archive of your recordings, your video. And this was something that I had to tell my assistant about because he had discarded some of the older videos when we started doing Zooms. And so we lost some of that content and we had to be very intentional about keeping the content cataloging all of the content because you don't know where your show is going to go in the future. The way it starts, and this same was true with my podcast, the way it started with the name at the end of the tunnel and all of that is not where it is today. Where it is today is, is a little bit different from where it started. And that's because you evolve with time and you iterate with experience. But after those three episodes, after Professor Blight's episode, Ava DuVernay's, and uh, Adrian Mishler's episode. Those were the ones that probably gave me the most anxiety preparing for them and initially when I was having them. And so after those, I felt like I was able to talk to anybody. And what I learned research-wise was that it wasn't really necessary to do as deep of research as I was doing for new guests because I started to learn where the nuggets were. For instance, if someone writes a book about whatever their message is, right? Part of the book is going to be personal stories. The other part of the book is going to be their technique or their method or their philosophy or ideology. And so I learned that what was more valuable for my particular interest in my format, and this is not going to be the case with everybody's format, was the personal stuff, the personal stories. So a lot of times I would peruse the philosophy, you know, I would obviously understand where they were coming from, but when I got to the personal story, that's where I would slow down and start taking meticulous notes. And then I would get to another chapter or chunk of philosophy and I would peruse that and take meticulous notes. Initially, I was listening to their books on audio because I could listen to them while I was walking or while I was cleaning up or something like that. And then I could just have my notes app on my phone. But what I learned much, much later was that it's actually more efficient to look at PDFs or the e-version, the e-book version of their material, because then you can just spot glance 
okay, this is personal story philosophy. And you can just kind of quickly skim through it. And one of the ways that I do that is I just kind of, and I started doing this just sort of organically, but I would just read the first line of a paragraph. And that first line usually tells you if this is going to be personal story or philosophy and basically what that paragraph is about. And if you follow that format, you can get through an entire, say, 250-page book within a couple of hours and have a generally good idea what the book is about. And you can have five to 10 personal anecdotes or stories that they've talked about in the book within those couple of hours. So I was able to, quote, read someone's book within two to three hours which meant that I didn't have to spend a week researching someone. Cause sometimes you have a pot, you'll have five or six people lined up to interview in a week. Right. And you just have to kind of both them all, all together because that's when they're available and you want to stay maybe three or four interviews ahead of what you're publishing. You don't want to get to a point where you need to interview someone in order to publish their episode next week or this Thursday. Right. You want to give yourself at least two episodes ahead at the very, very bare minimum. So you don't have that unnecessary pressure on yourself, if not three or four episodes out in the can so that you can sort of pick and choose who you would like to publish next. Because the other thing is when it comes to diversity, a lot of the people that I interview are just white women or white men. There's some black men, there's some black women. And it's nice to have a diverse array of guests. So if I'm interviewing a white woman, then I'll try to have a man on for the next week. Or if it's a black man, I'll have an Asian woman or whatever the the mixture happens to be. But I like to, to switch it up a little bit in that way, just so that the audience has a more diversified range of stories, backgrounds, perspectives, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of become one of my signatures is you don't really know who's going to come, but you know, it's going to be someone from a different background from last week's guests. And that person is probably going to have some unique perspective from the last week's guests. But the one commonality between all of my guests is that they are going to be talking about something related to mission, purpose, calling, passion, right? Following heart, leaps of faith, et cetera, et cetera. And that's been another really beautiful thing to see is that you see that these stories really start to line up, right? Somebody says, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Well, the same thing is true with following your purpose. Like the blueprint for following your purpose, it's never the same for any two people, but a lot of it rhymes, right? A lot of it rhymes. And it usually starts with someone who's living a more or less conventional life. And maybe they came from a background that wasn't so great. Maybe it was very humble and they were able to kind of escape out of that and run towards the societal conventional idea of success until they realized that they weren't feeling as fulfilled inside for whatever reason. And then they saw some need in the fabric of life that turns out their unique background, the way they grew up, their interests had prepared them for without them realizing that they were being groomed for this particular service to provide this particular service or to set this particular example. And usually they reach a moment where 
No one else is really around them. Very few people are supporting them in taking this leap of faith in the direction of this service opportunity. So they start doing it in small ways and they get a proof of concept for themselves and they start doing it in larger ways. And then eventually they take the big leap of faith in the direction of their passion, their purpose, their calling. They get a lucky break or two and then it gets hard and then they stick with it because once they help one or two people, they see how addictive it is. And how contagious it is to help one or two people. They start getting volunteers and then eventually it starts to grow from there and then it becomes a thing. And then people like me want to talk to them about it and hear their story. So that is the basic blueprint of anyone who is now living their purpose. And it's uncanny how much it rhymes with, you know, new people's experiences. So it's really exciting for me nowadays. You know, I'm about 120 episodes in or something at this, at this point. It's really exciting for me to come across someone who I've never heard of before, who's been out in the field doing that level of work. You know, they found their mission and they're gaining notoriety. And to be able to reach out to that person confidently and offer them a way to provide value to their platform. And this is because of the time and the effort and the energy that I put into it. And so that's why I say, you know, it's a double-edged sword in that it's hard, it's time-consuming. And at the same time, it's a really beautiful way and an excuse to reach out to someone who's inspired you. So nowadays I'll read a book and if I really like this book, or if I see a documentary and I really like the documentary, I will reach out to that person and say, hey, I love your work. I love what you're doing. I would love to feature you on my podcast. And then you have to, of course, name drop and you have to say, you know, I've already interviewed this person, that person. And I think you would be an amazing guest to come on and share your story. And I will do deeper research than anyone you've talk to at this point, and this will become one of your top interviews, according to a lot of my past guests. And I'm not shy about saying that because I know that it's the truth. I know I can back that up. And I've conditioned myself to do the extra work, to go above and beyond, and to delight the guest with that level of research. And that's become, again, one of my trademarks for coming onto my show. And this is still not a huge show. This is not, you know, this is not a big show. It may be top 100 at this point in the purpose mission genre, maybe higher than that. I don't know. But I know that as I continue to stay consistent and to stay on mission, it's going to just continue to get more and more traction. It's not really about how big can I get this? How much can I scale it? When am I going to get sponsors and da, 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 da. All of that is going to come as I continue to focus on the quality over the quantity. And to be perfectly honest with you, in hindsight, the interviews that I resonated with and loved the most were from people who are not very popular, very famous. They're from people who have been operating more or less in obscurity, and they just have a really great story and they're good storytellers. So that's another thing when I do my prep now, in the early days, I didn't know how to properly prep a guest for an inter interview. 
But what tends to happen is some guests, they can go on and on and on with their answer. And it may not be the best listening experience for someone to give long answers. And so the best type of answer for someone to give is if they tell a story. They tell a story or if they give an anecdote that has some sort of a personal experience tied into the anecdote. And usually podcast hosts, people who have their own podcast, are the best guests because they're kind of used to talking more or less in sound bites. But if you talk to people who've been interviewed a lot of times, they only talk in sound bites. And it can be sometimes difficult to get them to break out of the stock answer that they've given a million times. And so that's where your research comes in, because if you know some obscure facts about their life, or if you know how to ask questions, not to their highlight reel, but to the in-between moments, those are the questions that can disrupt the sort of stock answer type of interview and get them to kind of go off the beaten path and just talk about real things and real feelings and, and things like that. That's something that you need to kind of work up to. You don't want to start off asking them some deep, introspective, personal question in the very beginning of the interview. But I find that asking them about childhood, getting them to kind of reflect back onto their favorite activity or their favorite toy from childhood is a great way to kind of get them to think this is going to be a different type of interview. And I've had people comment, and you've probably heard that if you're a fan of the show, like, I've never been asked that before. Oh, wow, that's such an interesting question. Hmm, Let me think about that. And that's, that's something that you always want to hear as an interviewer. Now, that's not necessarily going to lead to large numbers of views. <laughs> if you start off, there's a whole other algorithm and strategy for getting the most number of people to view your, your YouTube video version of your podcast. And that would get red flagged by talking about something like childhood. Instead, you want to talk about something that's a lot more topical that people are already searching for. And that's something I've done before and I've tried it. And, you know, it's something that I I need to find balance with because it's not really me. I don't like necessarily starting conversations that way, but I do understand the metric side of that. And you just have to, you just have to determine for yourself based on your values and your mission, what is the most important thing for you? And if you stick to what's most important for you and you keep bringing a quality amount of attention, research, and questions to the interview, eventually your podcast is going to get the right attention. You're going to have one of those quotes, lucky breaks, because you are consistent. And it's really it really just comes down to consistency. So eventually, going back to the early days, eventually I did release the podcast even though I had those interviews with the weird sound from that other platform that was not Zoom, I had a production team out of Canada do the cutting and the editing for me. And I found the music and stuff from license-free music sites and had them all put it together. And we did a couple of test episodes. And that became the beginning of my show, which started off again as At the End of the Tunnel. And then I I knew probably around episode 50 or so, I was going to rebrand it at episode 100. At episode 100, I said, I'm going to do something different. Ended up rebranding it to the Light 
show. If you look at the graphic, it just says the light show. I've been calling it the light Watkins show as a sort of transition towards just the light show, but it's the light show. That's where it is now. Who knows how long that will be the case, but I just wanted to open it up a little bit more. As I talked about in my last solo episode, I wanted to give myself a little more freedom and space to interview people who had maybe previously been interviewed, but they've written a new book or they have a new thing that they're interested in and that I find intriguing in order to introduce you guys to that. But bottom line is having a podcast is difficult, time-consuming, but it's also incredibly rewarding. And it's something that you can do very, very simply from your phone, as, as I did in the very early days. And then there are all kinds of platforms that allow you to do that, to record simply from your phone and even edit on the platforms using audio formats. Zoom is great. Zoom, you can download video and audio recordings. So you can do your podcast completely through Zoom. And then you can edit the podcast on GarageBand or whatever video editor. There are probably all kinds of platforms that exist now that didn't exist a couple of years ago because so many people started doing podcasts during the pandemic. And the other statistic that I read or somebody told me once was that I think it was like 90% of podcasts don't go beyond 10 episodes. So after about 10 episodes, for whatever reason, the person who started the podcast just stops publishing. And the reason is probably because it's it's difficult. So yeah, you have to have some stick to You have to have some determination, you have to have some tenacity, and you have to ultimately find a workflow. You have to figure out, okay, if I'm going to publish this thing on whatever day, Thursday, I need to have it recorded by the previous Friday, and I need to have it edited and everything no later than the previous Monday, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And then by that time, it's ready to go out on Thursday, and then I need to have at least two episodes in the can prior to that Thursday. And that only comes through consistency. The more consistent you are, the more you'll get clear about whatever your workflow happens to be. And then once you have your workflow in place, then you'll be able to schedule things accordingly. So you're not going to be behind the eight ball every week and pulling your hair out and running around like a chicken with its head cut off, trying to figure out how am I going to get this episode out, recording it the night before and this kind of nonsense, because that's just a big problem to have on top of whatever other problems you happen to be experiencing in your life. And eventually it's going to catch up to you and you're going to say, you know what, this is too much work. So you have to really be organized. And I don't consider myself to be the most organized person. I definitely have had help. As I said, I have an assistant who helps me with stuff. And I have a production team who's been helping me with stuff. And that's been extremely helpful. I could not have done it without all of that in place. And so there's an expense related to that. Each episode probably costs me about $150 to $200 to put out, which is expensive. That's $1,000 a month for the podcast, but it's saving me a lot of hours of time that I would have to be investing into the editing and creating of assets and whatnot. And so I'd rather do what I do best, which is create content and teach people and write my books and make more money to be able to subsidize the cost of the production 
then have to spend all my free time trying to edit audio and do this kind of stuff. But that may be where you start because maybe you don't have enough of a budget to hire someone to do all those things for you. And again, you can do them very simply. I chose to use a production company that could do some pretty fancy cutting and splicing between the music and the introductions and all of that. You don't have to go that way. You can just do the introductions yourself. You can build it into the episode. You can hire someone to transcribe your episodes for you and do everything sort of a la carte. And that's another way to go, at least in the beginning. Maybe you make an agreement with yourself for the first 25 episodes. I'm going to do it all myself because I want to learn what it takes so that I can know how to talk to people and the right questions to ask uh, potential production companies down the line as you start to get more familiar with the process. And then maybe you get a sponsor and you can help pay for some of that stuff down the line as well. But I wouldn't say to use budget for a reason to not start because the value in your episodes is going to be the quality of your research and the quality of your questions. And so that's something you're going to have to do regardless of whatever your budget happens to be. If you if you ask great questions, if you do good research and you create a great experience for the guest, you're going to have very powerful experiences, very, very powerful episodes that people are going to want to listen to. If you read through my reviews, people are always commenting, he has the most interesting guests on. No, that's not the case. I mean, yes, the guests are interesting, but it's the interview that brings out the interesting parts of that person's story. I would say that everybody is interesting, right? If you know how to ask them questions about their life and give them space to talk and let the story develop organically, you'll find that everybody has something interesting about their life or about their perspective. So that's on you as the interviewer to make that guest come off as the most interesting person the listener has heard in a long time. In that sense, you don't have to have some big name guests. You can really interview your neighbor. You can interview anybody who's doing something or who stands for something that's interesting. And you can bring that out. You can bring that interesting out in a way that inspires people who listen to it. That's the opportunity. And that's the fun challenge. And if if you have a dud of an interview, you don't have to publish it either. You are the captain of the ship and what you say goes ultimately. And so do what you feel is the right thing to do in accordance to your mission and your purpose for your show if you choose to go forward and start your podcast. Okay. And then last thing I'll say is that Tim Ferriss, who you probably know already, he's one of the most famous podcasters out there. He's written extensively about how to start a podcast using the equipment that he uses And I definitely made reference to that in the early days for my podcast. I have not done that, so I don't have any articles or blog posts to point you to in that regard, but I know he does, and I'm sure a ton of other people do as well. So if you just do some basic research on what's already been published, you'll find tons and tons of resources, YouTube videos, everything for making podcasts from basically any kind of device imaginable. My podcasts are all from my iPhone and from my iPad. That's it. I don't have a laptop. I get, got rid of my laptop in 2018. So now I just operate with an iPhone and iPad. And then I have this, this mic, which is a mic that Tim Ferriss uses. 
the Audio Technica. This is this was not the mic I started with. The one I started with malfunctioned at some point, and so I switched over to this one. And this one has been working very beautifully for me. So definitely check out his blog post on it on the Four Hour Work Week blog, and enjoy exploring the possibilities and and try to just get started. Just take the first few steps. Everything else will get revealed from there. All right. Thank you so much. We'll be back with more solo episodes in the future. So look forward to that next one. And then we'll get back to the guest episodes starting next week. Thank you for listening to my solo episode. We'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to the Light Watkins show, we've got an incredible archives of other solo episodes that I've done, as well as interviews with luminaries such as director Ava DuVernay, Ed Milet, spoken word artist Saul Williams, chef Marcus Samuelson, and many others who share how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search past interviews by subject matter at lightwatkins.com slash show. You'll see a drop down menu where you can search through those past episodes by specific subjects like people who've taken a leap of faith or people who've overcome financial struggles or people who've navigated health challenges. And you can watch these podcast episodes, including my solo episodes on my YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, search Light Watkins Podcast, and you'll see them all there. And if you want to hear the raw, unedited version of my podcasts, you're going to have to join my Happiness Insiders online community. And not only can you hear all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat at the beginning and end of every episode, but you will also have access to my 108 day meditation challenge, as well as the other 108 day challenges and masterclasses. It's at thehappinessinsiders.com. One way to support the show is to leave a rating or a review for the podcast, which you can do really quickly on the Apple Podcast app. Just glance down at your phone, click on the name of the podcast, scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see a space with five blank stars. If you really liked this episode, click the star all the way on the right, and that way you leave a five-star review. If you want to go the extra mile and leave a rating, then thank you in advance for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like you and me who took a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting in your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.